You're listening to the sermon podcast from Real Life Church Pullman, reaching the world for Jesus, one person at a time. We are going to finish our First John sermon series today, and the next week we're going to begin our Advent series as we run home to the manger. But um, we're going to talk about something that is, is in First John, is kind of a hidden theme in a lot of ways, but he ends his message with talking about this particular subject. And so I wanted to end our series with talking on this on this subject. And it can be a pretty heavy one, but it's one that I think we all need to, to think about and talk about as we explore more what this means. And we're going to talk about how do we guard ourselves from idols. Guarding ourselves from idols. Speaking of going into Christmas and all the things that we do. Guarding ourselves from idols. And uh, I want to talk a little bit just kind of introduce this subject, I guess, briefly by talking a little bit about counterfeits, counterfeits and the definition of counterfeits. And, um, you know, a counterfeit is something that is a fraudulent imitation of something, right? So it's a fraudulent imitation of something, a forgery, often made with an exact imitation of something valuable or important to us. You know, we, we know of counterfeits. We see a lot of counterfeits every day. Um, we, you know, we oftentimes will even buy counterfeits so we can save a little bit of money. How many of you guys do that by the off-brand of some things? Like, I don't really want to spend the full price. I'll, I'll spend a little bit less and, and try to get a product that I know is, a less, is inferior, but it saves me at the end of the day. So here's some examples of, examples of a, a counterfeit goods. If you brush your teeth with Crest toothpaste, but what about... Crust toothpaste. I don't know if I would trust crust, personally. I like my crest toothpaste a little bit better. This is an example of a a counterfeit. And if you were around in the 90s, you laughed and cried while you watched The Lion King. But have you heard of the nightmare that is that lion thing? His name, I like his name new. His name is Chufasa. This is a counterfeit of a a number of things, actually. The lion thing. That lion thing. Many of us have washed our bodies with Dove body soap in showers or bathrooms, but I hope none of you have used Dave body soap. (laughs) That would send me to the hills right there. Someone gave me Dave body soap. These are examples of counterfeits, things that are forgery imitations of things that we know. All of us know what the actual original thing was, right? We all know it's talking about Chewbacca or the Lion King, this kind of hybrid weird thing that they made. We all know about Dove soap. We all know about Crest toothpaste. We, we know of the original, but we also can recognize the counterfeit. We also recognize his imitation. And I think many of us would not purchase these items. I don't know many of us that would buy crust toothpaste. Okay, I'm not sure. Maybe you are. I don't know. I don't, I don't know how you work. But I wouldn't personally buy crust toothpaste or Dave body soap. But our world is full of counterfeits. I think many of us are aware of this. We have a world full of counterfeits. Not just these consumer goods, but in things that will attempt to imitate the things in our life that will satisfy our souls, our value, our worth, our purpose. And so often what we will do is we will settle for counterfeits. We will settle for those things that will try and imitate a satisfaction of soul, purpose, value, worth. But it, what ends up is it leads us even empty, dissatisfied. And we're kind of like losing those counterfeit goods. We're kind of left with a sense of, I should have, I should have went with the original showing with what the actual was and, and gotten the full-priced item, we're left feeling emptier than when we entered into it. So we must be on guard against things that constantly 
attempts to be counterfeits in our lives. And we're going to talk more about that is how do we stay on guard against the counterfeits, against the idols of our life? When you think of idols, you can think of the word counterfeit, forgery and imitation, something that will is attempting to, to fill some kind of a hole in your life, but is a, an imitation and a forgery. That place, many of us are struggling to fill, is only reserved ever for the relationship that the Lord can offer. And that's the way John is going to end his message, is making sure that we know that there is a hole that is to be filled and it is to only be filled with our relationship with the Lord. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn or tap to 1 John chapter 5, 20 verse 21. That's going to be the passage we're going to look at today. 1 John chapter 5, 20 verse 21. This is the very end of his message. He says this, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know the true one. We may know the true one, the reality, the real one. We are in the true one. That is in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And then he ends with this, little children, guard yourselves from idols. And that's how John ends his message. And it seems a bit awkward, doesn't it? As John ends his message, it almost sounds like he's like, well, I got one more thing I need to say, but I ran out of ink, so I'll just put this thing in here, right? Your children, guard yourselves from idols. But what really I think he's saying is all of these things about light, love, knowing him, the things we've talked about over the last few weeks, a lot of these things can be hindered by the fact that we pursue and worship and love and desire idols. And so I think this is his last little line to his people Really saying here, if you want to love, if you want to live in the light, if you want to know God, guard yourselves from idols. That's kind of the last little statement he would make. And John was known for these little statements in his old age. Some tradition has come down to us where often John, as an old man, instead of going up and giving a large sermon or a speech, he would walk up in front of the, the church, similar to what I'm doing, and he would walk up and he would just say, dear children, little children, love each other. And then he would that would be all he said. I mean, the depth of just little children love each other. A lot of times that was his sermons at the very end of his life were these little snippets. And so you could kind of see this elderly man, all the things he's gone through, everything that he's experienced in his life, the things that he saw, the things that he witnessed, the loss that he saw, the hurt that he saw, the brokenness he saw, the victories he saw, all of it. And this is how he's ending his, his message to these people is guard yourselves from idols. This is a very significant thing that I think he's trying to to drive home. John is connecting the idea of the true one, the Jesus Christ, the living life, the word of life, being closely tied to him in the same way of guarding yourselves from the counterfeit. Being close to Jesus, entering into the true one, the reality of him, being in him, being safe, protected, secure in him, and guarding ourselves from the counterfeit, the fake, the forgery, the imitations. Right? A lot of times we end up forging ourselves in the imitations instead of forging ourselves in the way of the true, not, the true eternal one, that is Jesus Christ. So let's look at the dangers of idols first. Why is this important? I think a lot of us have you know, Sunday school imagery of idols where we're thinking of the Ten Commandments. But let's look at first the dangers of idols because there is a reality of the danger of idols that we need to drive home here. Augustine said this, the essence of sin is disordered love. The essence of sin is disordered love. Writing 
a few hundred years after John, the essence of sin is disordered love. You know, love again is a key theme throughout John's gospel. You can't not read John's gospel and walk away with the key theme that he wants us to love people. Again, it's the one thing he would often say in his messages was just little children love people, right? So love is a key aspect of this. What we love, who we love is a key aspect. We love each other. But he's also talking about closely guarding ourselves from idols. And I think there's a connection here between love, especially a disordered love and our pursuit of idols, right? What you love and the order of which you love it means a lot in how you conduct your life. For example, if someone is to put their career at the very top of the, of, of the priority list of the things you're going to pursue, the very front, you live and die and breathe to work, this will cause a sinful reaction to the rest of the chain. You look at some statistics that we look at here. Divorce rates are 40% higher when spouses become workaholics. 40% higher when careers are the number one priority in life. You put your family second, you put the Lord third. If this becomes disordered, the love of what you commit to, the love that you seek and pursue becomes disordered. Augustine argues here that's the essence of where sin becomes and enters into your life is when your disordered love happens. You know, in my life, I think about, and you're going to get a lot of my confession today, okay, just... Just prepare yourself. Um, in my own life, I've learned that I'd have to take a rest day. Like it is an absolute must for me because I will just work and work and work. And taking an actual Sabbath day or a rest day allows me to actually get kind of reordered in my life. That ministry and pastoring is not my number one priority in life. This is something I love to do and I love being able to do it, but being there for my family and my relationship with the Lord are my first two priorities. Relationship with the Lord, number one, and my family, number two. Right? This is really something that we should all wrestle with is where are our priorities? You know, I had a pastor, she probably couldn't spell very well, but she, t- she taught me this amazing lesson. She said, love is spelled T-I-M-E. What you commit to, the things you spend your time doing, declares your love for it. How much time you spend doing something helps you to measure how much you love doing what you do. And, and I've learned to really love Sabbath rest. Now, I have three little ones, so there's not a lot of napping going on on my rest days, right? But it's a day where I get to kind of turn my brain off from the rest of the things I usually do, right? So I encourage you, if, if you really are struggling with how do I prioritize my life, take a rest day. I mean, that's why Sundays exist for a lot of us. Traditionally, why these days exist are for Sabbath day rests. This is why you won't hear from me much on a Friday if you reach out to me, because it's a day that we are resting. Hopefully our staff is resting on a Friday. And the idols that we often will serve often will try to replace these things that we are, are soul-caring things, right? It's really easy to replace rest day with other things that will burn you out, take care, you know, try to take over what you're trying to accomplish. And Tim Keller said this, the late Tim Keller said this about idols, an idol will always break your heart. An idol will always break your heart, meaning that an idol will always leave you dissatisfied. I can't tell you how many people that I've ran into in the secular business world who have worked so incredibly difficult and sacrificed so much to get to the top, only to realize that the top is just as dissatisfying as it was at the bottom. I mean, years they spent getting to those C-level positions, 
making the types of money that they were always sold, told would be, this is the type of thing you need to go pursue, make a lot of money, have the comfort, all the things, and they get there and they realize they haven't changed. They're still the same person at the top as they were at the bottom. And that becomes a, a kind of a disillusioned idea of I was sold a bill of goods, I got to the top, and now I realize the bill of goods is, is worthless, that I'm now even more heavy burdened as I was at the top, at the bottom. I just get to go on nicer vacations, right? A celebrity will often find fame, but is often the most depressed when they reach it. They'll live their life and they'll try to find the the celebrity pedestal. If I just can get to this spot in life, I can just get to this kind of well-known, if I can make this movie or get in that Broadway show, whatever it looks like, if I can just get to that, I'll be happy. And they get there and they realize it's just as depressing as it was before they got there. So often it begins with the essence of love being disordered or the essence of sin being disordered, love. And what John is teaching us here in these passages is that we know that the Son of God, he uses the, the, the term of preeminence and kingship to describe the, the, the getting to know the supreme being in this world. He said, get to know him. Know the supreme being. Know the, the one who is ultimate. Know the Son of God. Put him in the first priority. I am a better dad when I spend time with the Lord as I father. I am a better husband when I put the Lord first and, and do the things I need to do as a husband from the place of the Lord being number one in my life, being the first in my priority, being the, the thing I spend the most time with. I know in my life when I am not spending time with the Lord because it affects my family. It affects how I parent. It affects my patience. It affects how I forgive. It affects all the things that kind of trickle down in the line. So John is telling us there is one supreme, preeminent person being in this world. Therefore, put him first in that first 20. And then he says, to know him is to know the real, the real thing. He says, the true one. You know, when you think about true, when you think about the Bible, think about the real thing. He says, not these counterfeit things. Not the counterfeit things. Not the things that you're told that are going to satisfy your soul. Not the things that you think you should pursue that will satisfy and give you comfortability. He says, there is one true and living real thing. Understanding him and knowing him is how we guard ourselves from idolatry. You guys all saw the crust and the lion thing. You guys knew what it was talking about because you knew the original. You knew what they were trying to imitate. You knew the forgery. Guarding yourselves from idols helps you. What you do to guard yourself from idols means that you are understanding, you are knowing the reality of the true one that you serve. That he is the real one, the true one, the good thing in this world that leaves us not trying to pursue shallow and hollow ends, but knowing him and understanding him means what it looks like to live a life of what it means to be a human in this world. When you think about how we were created to function in relationship with our God, our creator, He was the one who was supposed to fill the hole that so often many of us have when we try to use imitation and forgery to fill it. We are to be safely tucked away in him. You know, John and Paul both use this phrase, in Jesus. And that's what John uses here. He says, we are in the true one. That is, in his son. You know, when you think about it, you have a, like a, an empty bag or something, and you're putting something in it. You're, you're safed away. You're tugged away. You're, you're wrapped away in him. You think you could use even a Christmas present. You're boxed in, and you're, you're wrapped up. You're secured within him. And this is what John is trying to tell his people. 
that when you are putting him first as the supreme and ultimate thing in your life, you're recognizing, understanding that living for him and living to be with him is the meaning and true reality of life. And you're saying when you're in him, you are tucked away, secure, safely protected from all of the other things of the imitation of forgeries in this world. Because there's a lot of them. There are many things that will try to imitate him and imitate the things that he can bring. And the the dangers of idolatry are evident to all. It doesn't take a a believer in Jesus to understand and recognize that idolatry is a wicked thing. Not only because it, it usurps priority and disorders us into a place of sinfulness, but it also is a, a thing that can really break a human being altogether when it's out of order. The American novelist David Foster Wallace, who to my knowledge was not a believer, but what he said really strikes home, I think, to the dangers of idolatry. And let me just read. This is, this is a speech that he was giving. He says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as worshiping. Every, every this thing is not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only church is Christ, Allah, Yahweh, or the wicked mother goddess. The compelling reason to worship that kind of God is that pretty much everything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if that is where you tap, in, tap into your meaning of life, then you will never have enough and you'll never feel that you have enough. If you worship your body, beauty, or sexual lore, when then a million deaths before they finally grieve you. If you worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid and will need ever more and more power over others just to numb, numb you from your own fear. If you worship your intellect, if you live for the purpose of being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always ending up on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about all these forms of worship is that they are unconscious. I think he nails it right on the head as far as the dangers of idolatry is that it will eat you alive. That these things that we pursue, the things we give our hearts over to, the things we love, the things we desire, the things we commit to, if they are out of order, they will eat us alive. They will destroy our relationships. They will destroy our families. They will destroy our walk with the Lord. So many things can be destructive. They will eat us alive. And I think the last line in particular is really interesting is that they are unconscious. I think this is where John is really trying to strike home the point here is guard yourself because so often we do this without even recognizing we do it. That's the scary part of idolatry is that we could stand up here and I could stand up here all day and go, hey, don't worship idols, but I could have 15 idols in my life and not even recognize it. I could be riddled with it. Christians tend to understand that idolatry is bad. I don't think anybody probably walked in these doors and was like, yeah, we should worship idols today. I think we all recognize that it's a, it's a bad thing. What we don't often recognize is the consequences of it being able to actually eat us alive and that we are most often completely blind to them in our life because most often our idols are good things. This is the scary thing is that idols are often good things. It's a good thing to have a family. It's a good thing to have a career. It's a good thing to be able to, to have money even. That's not a bad thing. You know, but when those things become out of order, the consequence is that they'll eat you alive. When those things become, the meaning of life becomes about pursuing those things and only those things, those things will eat you alive. You know, the, the, the best marriages are the ones you have to be most on guard for. 
Because guess what? If you lose your spouse, you'll soon realize that there might be an idol there with your spouse. And that tends to happen in the good marriages. That's kind of a scary thought. The counterfeits can often be found in the good things that we love, that are good things in this world, but have become out of order. We must really guard ourselves from the things that we are identifying ourselves with. Are you identifying yourself as we have a great marriage, but if she or he was to pass away, what happens? Do you cave into yourself? Do you lose your is your identity and worth valued in your good marriage? We have to be able to identify these things and guard ourselves from these types of counterfeits. Here's a truth that we all have to deal with. And this is really an important part is we have to be able to identify them. So how do we identify our idols? I think the number one thing we have to do is you don't evaluate your desires necessarily. You evaluate your nightmares. Okay. Don't evaluate your desires, evaluate your nightmares, right? What keeps you up at night? What wakes you up in the early mornings because you're afraid it might be gone tomorrow, right? Not necessarily your desires, but your nightmares. What is that one thing that you dread to lose the most that you say, if I lost this person or this thing, I don't know if I could function. Now, obviously there's grief and there's mourning. Those are beautiful spiritual things, especially if it's a person that you're mourning. But again, there's a, there's a line there between worshiping your spouse or worshiping this person you're close to versus worshiping and keeping it in the proper order. What thing, if it was absent, would you feel like it would absolutely destroy you? What is your nightmare scenario? This could be a thing that you desire, a thing that you worked hard for, even a particular person who you cherish. And what happens is we, these, these become subtle saviors in our lives. Subtle saviors is the counterfeit idols that often will, will catch us. Again, the number one, rate, number one subtle savior in our lives is usually going to be people closest to us, our spouses and our children. You know, a parent who puts their children as their first priority and number one before even their walk with the Lord will, will often have really harsh expectations on that child. What happens when that child doesn't meet the expectations that that parent desired for them? What happens when that idol that the parent built around that kid begins to not function or act the way that that parent expected that child to act? You can see the ramifications of that as that kid becomes an idol, and it's no place for those people to be. You think about your spouses, and in Amy, a lot of times I have to guard myself from seeing her as an idol in my life because I care a lot about what she thinks about me. And I care a lot about what she thinks of even my preaching. So oftentimes I'll ask her on a Sunday, you know, what'd you think? You know, and she's, she'll usually be very honest with me. And she says, it'll, you know, be good. Or, you know, I kind of, but she'll never say it's bad. You know, I don't really know how she subtly would say that to me necessarily. Probably, in, I'd probably pick it up kind of through her facial expressions or something. She might do that after today. I don't know. I'll let you guys know. But I have to guard myself because so often my worth and my value is found in what she thinks about me. And this could be setting her up for an idol. That's not fair to her. Imagine putting her in that position where she's like, do I, have, do I say it, it was a stinky sermon and break him? Or do I, you know, do I be honest with him? Like we put people in those places of idols 
And then it's not fair for them because then how do they actually be truthful with us when we're, they have different expectations or assumptions about what we're trying to do? When I, when I look at Amy and I try to put her into a place of my value and my worth and my substance is all in what she thinks of me, I'm setting her up as a subtle savior in my life. Someone who I'm hoping will give me these things that I crave. Right? It's a subtle way of trying to produce a savior in your life. And so often that can be spouses, that can be work, that can be careers, that can be money. I don't know, just name it. It's just, it could be really anything that you feel and say, this is where I'm, my worth and value comes from. The subtle saviors of life. And if you're getting your worth, your value, purpose, your satisfaction, and how your kids are at school, or how your marriage looks, or your, how your career looks, or how much money is in your bank account, or whatever that looks like, you are again setting yourself up for failure. You're setting yourself to be eaten alive by the idols of the world. I have consciously, I've had to constantly try to guard myself about putting idols up in my life, and, and I'm still working at it in a lot of ways. I mean, even as a, and I stepped into ministry, another one that I really struggled with was my identity in being a pastor. I thought, I, I only, I, this was, okay, confession time. You know, when I was first stepping into ministry, so often I would, um, and feedback's a really important thing for me, so you'll hear that a lot. I need Give me feedback. But what happened a lot of times when I first started doing that was I was looking for validation from people. Did you like that? Were you doing okay? Am I doing okay for you? Right? As a pastor. And you can see how as someone who has to kind of speak the truth a lot of times, that can be a hard place to be. Right? And I became very consumed by the fact that I was a pastor. This was my identity and who I was, and, the, and it was part of my value. And I was like, well, I'm only good to the church if I, I'm a pastor. And all these things slowly, subtly crept into my life. And the repercussions of that were someone who was afraid to lose the pastorship. Someone who was afraid to, to not have that, that, that meaning and purpose in my life again. And I'm glad I went through that at a very, you know, in my 20s because I got to see the, the, the ugliness of trying to conduct a, a life, or life living for the Lord in that type of place. It wasn't toward the, the Lord really brought a lot of humiliation in my life and, and brought in a lot of humbleness into my life that I started to see that I can't, I can't be somebody who is finding their only their meaning and value into the church by just by being a pastor. You know, I hope that none of you, and I've tried to say this out loud to people before, is none of you are here because of your value in just being here. Like, I, or what you do here. Your value is not found in how you serve here. Your value is not found in, in what you give to the church. Your value is not here in your sacrifices to the church. Those are good things, but your value is only ever found in Jesus, and that's how we want to see you. That's how we look at each other. No one, is, no one is walking around here going, well, this person serves you know, 40 hours a week. Wow, what a, they're so valuable to this church. This person serves an hour a week. Ugh, they have no value. Like, that is not what we're doing here. You are valuable because of who you are in Jesus. You are valuable because he went to a cross and died for you. The son of God, the true eternal one, went to a cross and died for you. You are valuable because you were created in the image of God, a steward of his creation. This is how we should look at people. 
not because of things that we do or achievements that we have made. The number two way of of really understanding and, and identifying our idols is look at your most uncontrollable emotions. You know, this changes as you get older. This changes as you get older. You look at your kids, they've got a lot of idols. Because <laughs> you take anything away, you're going to see the uncontrollable emotion. Some of that is just being a kid, too. But as you, get, as you start to evaluate yourself, as you start to reflect on this, look at your most uncontrollable emotions. Because idolatry leads to enslavement of one way or another. You're going to worship and serve something, as, the, as that author said. Everyone serves something or someone. The loss of it results in uncontrollable emotions. Oftentimes, uncontrollable emotions. As an athlete, again, confession time. As an athlete, I was consumed by my performance in college. I was consumed by how the college coaches thought of me and and looked at me and said, if I had a bad race, boy, I just could not control my emotions. I was full of shame and guilt, and I shoulda, coulda, woulda. I was consumed by it. It was something that was a terrible idol in my life was how well I performed on the track and my emotions were sky high if I performed well, and they were at the lowest of low when I did not perform well. And it led me into places where, again, I didn't feel value. I didn't have worth. I thought, boy, if I had one bad race, why do they even keep me around? They might as well just kick me off the team, right? This is, again, the way of idols. If I put the idol above everything else and said my value and my worth and my satisfaction is found in my performance as an athlete, guess what? Everything below it started to be affected by it. My savior was always in how well I performed for my coach and my team. And it became an idol, and it ate me alive. It wasn't until the Lord blew out both my hamstrings that I realized, boy, I shouldn't put all my worth into this. Okay? When I spent the last two years of my athletic career on a bike because I couldn't run, it was probably the best thing the Lord could have ever done because he brought me down to a place where he could meet me. Something I now must guard against myself is the same way. Anything that you achieve and perform is if you guys are, anybody have kind of an optimizing type of mentality where you're like, I have to be a high achiever in whatever I do. Okay, you can raise your hands if you want. Perfectionists. Good. Oh, you got a couple. Thank you for being honest, Carrie. That's good. Yeah, I think a lot of us, we, we're all going after. We want to be the best at what we can be, but all the times, again, we can fall into that achievement mentality, and that can be a subtle savior in our life because it's easy for us to find our value worth in how we achieve things. And I'm not saying go out and be poor at what you do. You should be, you know, what you're doing is you're working for the Lord in everything that you do, right? But I'm saying don't put that as the top priority. It's whatever puts in the posture of if I just had this, then my value and worth, and I will be happy. Okay, That's what this does. The uncontrollable emotions, because you have put your value, your worth, and if I just have this, then I'll be happy. Again, no one here at RLC, the part of the culture that we're trying to develop here is that no one is valuable based off their contributions, based off of just their performances or their achievements. Your value is found because of who Jesus Christ is who you are in, who you are serving, who are you are loving, who are you are pursuing is where your value and worth is found. That's why the cross is such a beautiful thing. I mean, the cross is, is a terrible thing when you look at it from a, from a worldly perspective, but when you look at the meaning of what it was and the value and worth that it said to those he, that he died for, it's a beautiful showing of your value and your worth to God that he would send his one and only son to die on a cross 
for you. It just proclaims the love that he has for you. And that he didn't stay dead, but that he rose on the third day so that we could have eternal life. Because God is the God of the living and of the dead. So let's talk about how do we replace this? What happens, though, if we, when we discover these riddles of idolatry and these counterfeits in our lives, what do we do? Well, you don't overcome idolatry through white-knuckle effort. That's our first kind of inclination. We want to try harder, right? It's been proven, at least, that permanent affection can only be replaced with a greater affection. So if you are going to replace an affection for something, you have to find something you love even more than that affection. John is using the idea of love replacing your idolatry. Fall in love with something greater than the thing you fell in love with originally. Jacob did this in Genesis. He worked seven years for Rachel's hand. And it was a breeze for him, right? Seven years is, is, a, is a ridiculous type of ask for, for a wedding dowry. Even in, in, in Jacob's day, it would have been like, you worked seven years for, this, for her hand in marriage? Right? How many of us would work seven years for anything? <laughs> right? Yet this is what it looked like. He loved Rachel. For him, it was a simple task. The affection he had for the rest of his life was usurped by the affection he had for Rachel, and it allowed him to overcome it. When my kids were born, the love and affection I had for things like sleep and personal time was changed by my affection because I loved my children so much. That baby comes out. There's just something that clicks in your brain that says, I will do anything for this child. There needs to be an affection priority change. You must replace your affection with something greater. The love of God is the affection our souls is desperately desiring that can never be deposed or removed from our life. So often we're just looking for that thing that will not be removed, and it's the love of God that he says how much, you just recognize how much that he loves us, how much he does for us, how much he provides for us, how much he is there for us. Even when we don't feel it, he's there for us. There's just a love that will replace the affection that we so desire when we look at counterfeit gods. When you receive the love of God by his grace and see this love revealed in your life, the easier it is to remain in him. Look what he says in 1 John 4, 16. And we know and have believed the love of God that has for us. I understand it. I've seen it. I recognize it. I'm committed to the fact that he loves me. For God is love. That's who he is. That's that's a defining character of who he is. And the one who remains in love remains in God. And God remains in him. Put your affection as the number one thing of loving God. Loving him, being committed to him. Saying that no matter where we go in life, no matter what we do, you are the number one priority because everything else after that can be taken away. Relationships can be lost. People, they die, right? Sorry for that harsh reality, right? Finances change, careers change. You know, all the things that we try to build up as the number one part in this life, they are there today and gone tomorrow. But there is one love that stays consistent and has been since the beginning of time, which is the love of God living here amongst us. 
So don't settle for counterfeit idols. Don't settle for for subtle saviors in our life. Don't settle for those things that are just going to leave you wanting more and dissatisfied and disillusioned. First and foremost, set your heart on the love of God that sustains you and satisfies your soul. The love of God demonstrated in Jesus that was displayed on the cross and the resurrection revealed to us who he is and so that we can know that we are loved. The proof and evidence of the love of God displayed in Jesus. So break through the heaviness of the idols. Spend this week reflecting in this area. Where are the things that you spend your time in? Where are the things that you spend your your love in that might be something of a forgery, of a counterfeit? Really spend time, write them out in a notebook or a journal. You know, spend time wrestling with this idea of, hey, if I lost this person, what would that look like? What are your nightmares? Right? Write down those things that if I lost this, I'm not sure how my emotions would handle this. What would that look like? I told you, not an easy, it's not an easy sermon to go into Christmas with, but I think it's one that's really important for us to kind of be thinking about is priority-wise, are we out of order? Are we out of order? Do we need to reorder our lives so that we are living in a way that can be one that's satisfied and full and worth and full of value? Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us at rlcpullman.com and by connecting with us on Facebook. Until next time, have a great week.